Well, maybe I've already expressed it, but I will tell you that this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. The anticipation, the looking forward. It's been our habit as a church over the past several years to set aside this time, these weeks leading up to Christmas, to focus very specifically and very purposefully on the coming of Jesus. So we're taking a break from our normal pattern of, of walking through the book of the Bible so we can be very intentional in looking at Jesus. The fact that he was born, that he lived among us, that he took on flesh and dwelt on earth. And so this is the aim of the next three weeks, and I hope, hope you'll be with us. This is our aim, this is our goal, and I hope this will help us as we move towards Christmas. Our goal is to fix our eyes on Jesus, who he is, why he came, why that matters. It is something I look forward to every year, but I think this year I've been particularly anxious for it. Lots of things have been disrupted, right? Traditions, habits, many of them had to be set aside this year. But this does not have to be set aside. We can come together and we can fix our gaze upon Christ. This year we've been tested, we've been stretched. Some of you I know are weary. What better way to end the year than purposely fixing our eyes on our source of hope? We've been acquainted this year with uncertainty. This morning and in the weeks to come, we're going to consider what is certain. Things have seemed bleak. I hope you're eager to dwell and to fix your eyes on what is beautiful. The title I've given to our season of Advent this year is Beholding Christ. And that's just hopefully says very clearly what I hope we can do. That we can behold him, that we can look at him, that we can stand in awe of him. And not just so we see something beautiful, but so we can be changed. So I've been thinking about the season and asking God to strengthen us and to use it. I've been reminded of a quote I read from a really old pastor and theologian named John Owen. He wrote this, and I think this sets the stage well for where we're headed this morning. He says, by beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with fear, cares, dangers, distress, ungoverned passions and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But when the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, our minds can find rest and peace. Isn't that true? If we just let our minds go, they will cling to fear. They will cling to anxiety. They will cling to lusts and passions and desires. And so it's our goal to take our minds and to pull them away from the places we would normally go and to fix our eyes instead on Christ. And I think Owen is right. That when we take our mind off of those things and we fix them on Christ, we can find the rest we've been looking for. We can find the peace we've been hoping for. That said, we're going to begin our beholding of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll open there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
As you turn there, I will give you a bit of a disclaimer that this sermon will be unlike maybe any other sermon that you've ever heard me preach. You know, our practice is usually to go to one text and to spend our entire time there in that text unpacking what God would have us. And we're going to do something a little different in that we're going to go to several texts and, and consider what it means to behold the glory of Christ. The key text we have this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, just one verse. But for the sake of context, we'll start in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, follow along as I read. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. He's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word this morning. If you've been with us, this text may seem familiar. April last year, 2019, we worked through 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. And if you want to really dive into that text we just read, you can go back and find that sermon. What Paul's doing here in this text is he's unpacking for us the nature of his ministry and the content of his message. See, he's writing to these, these people, to this church in Corinth who has been bombarded by false teaching. And so Paul's writing them because he wants them to remember the necessity of getting the gospel right, of understanding it clearly. So in verse 2, he says, I'm coming to you, and my goal is not to manipulate, manipulate you. I, I don't want to build a following for myself. My aim is to preach the gospel clearly. And so he explains that the, the message goes out, and then he tells us that there's two different responses to the message, and we know this to be true, right? There's two different ways that people respond to Jesus. Paul says there in verses 2 and 3 that there will be those who hear the message and see Jesus as beautiful. But there will also be those whose eyes remain blind and they never recognize their need for him. So there'll be some who see and recognize and others who never do. You've had this experience, haven't you? You can think in your life and, and recognize that there are those who have seen Jesus and they recognize his beauty. They recognize their need for him. They respond to him with repentance and humility and worship. But there are others who have heard the gospel over and over and over again. And yet they don't respond. Paul tells us in this text that this is to be expected. There are those whose eyes are open to see the glory of Christ and there are those 
who remain blind. But he says this about those who have had their eyes open. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, when our eyes are open, we're enabled to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In that verse, he says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So he's taking us back to Genesis 1, that command. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, what has he done? He's shown into your heart. And what does God do when he shines light into your heart? He opens your eyes to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What I want us to consider this morning and what Paul tells us at the end of this verse is that those who see Jesus rightly recognize that he's the revelation of the glory of God. Those who see Jesus rightly recognize that he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a a prophet. No, he's the revelation, the very revelation of the glory of God. That's what we're going to spend our time considering this morning. Jesus as the revelation of the glory of God. You're thinking, I don't even know what that means. That's what we're going to try to work through this morning. What does it mean that Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God? Just to give you a preview, next week we're going to consider what it means that Jesus is the glory of God in flesh. So while this morning we're focusing primarily on him as God, next week we'll focus primarily on him as a man. And then in two weeks we'll consider the king of glory. Jesus as king. Jesus is God. Jesus as man. Jesus as king. But this morning, Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God. Consider that when he came, glory is revealed. What does that mean? Why does it matter? We see it here in this passage. Paul says that when light shines in our hearts, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who's revealing the glory of God. And we see this in other places in the scriptures. So what I want to do is kind of just pull this thread and just kind of show you that it, it finds its way throughout the scriptures. Consider John chapter 1, verse 14. That great prologue that we've read earlier together. It says in verse 14, the word became flesh, the word being Christ, the word being God in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What's he saying? He said, Jesus comes, he takes on flesh, and when we saw him, what did we see? We saw glory, a specific kind of glory. The glory of God. The glory is the one who comes from the Father. Jesus comes revealing the glory of God. We saw it in 2 Corinthians 4. We see it in John chapter 1. I'll show you another example. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Start in verse 1. Long ago, I love this. We worked through this maybe a couple of Christmases ago. Beautiful Christmas passage. If you want a passage to just grab a hold of this week as you think about Christmas, consider Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 5. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. 
Speaking of the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ, God spoke this way. He spoke through prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken in a different way. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Then he says this in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the glory of God. Paul says, when we see Jesus in the face of Jesus, we behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. John says, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? Glory. Hebrews 1. Jesus, the God in flesh, is the radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance, it makes us think of light, doesn't it? Jesus is shining forth glory. Throughout the scriptures, the world without God is usually described as being in darkness. If you've read the Bible, you've probably come across this imagery. It's all over the place. The world separated from God is described as being in darkness, under a cloud, lost and in the dark. But then Jesus comes in, and we're told that he is the light that breaks the darkness. Let me just give you some homework, okay? Every time you see Christmas lights, remember this. Jesus is the light that breaks the darkness. Parents, tell your kids. You know what the lights on the house remind us of? That Jesus is the light that has come into darkness. Our lives are dark without him. Jesus is the light. And tell them that about every house you see. It's in the Bible, John chapter 1. In him was life. His life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But he was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I love that picture. Darkness and light. It gives clarity to Hebrews 1.3. That Jesus is the radiance. He's the light that shines forth the glory of God. So it's as if Jesus is the source radiating, illuminating the darkness. Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God. So we've seen it in three places. 2 Corinthians 4, John 1, and Hebrews 1. You think, that's great. I, I, I'm following. I see that it says that in those three passages. I'm with you, except for the fact that I don't even know what that means. What's the glory of God? And in what way does Jesus demonstrate that? Well, this is how we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. First, I want to define what is the glory of God, or try to. Second, what does it mean that Jesus came as the revelation of the glory of God? And then third, why does that matter? Why should we strive to behold Jesus as the revelation of the glory of God? So first, what's the glory of God? To be honest, I almost just moved past this because it's hard to define. <laughs> glory is hard to define. 
I tried to just say it as simply as I could, that the glory of God is the shining forth of who he is. It's the manifestation of his person. To see God's glory is to see him in all of his fullness. To see God's glory is to see his character and his nature, to see him for who he is. It's common to use words like shining forth when we describe the glory of God. Once again, we see that imagery of light and dark, which is helpful. God is light. Consider Jesus being, or God being the sun, and the light that comes off is the glory. The glory shines forth from the source. Maybe that helps you understand glory a little bit better. But not only do we need to understand what glory is, that it's the shining forth of God, that it's the display of who he is. But I think it's important if we're going to behold Jesus as the display of the glory of God, then we have to consider the magnitude of the glory of God. See, you could suggest that you have glory. Shining forth who you are. And I like that. I like to see your glory. The glory of God, this is something far beyond what we can really imagine or conceive. It's no small thing. Perhaps the best example of the magnitude of the glory of God, maybe, maybe the best example is Exodus chapter 33. You may be familiar with the story. It's where we find Moses. Moses is the one who received the Ten Commandments from God. This is just after that. Moses has gone up on a mount called Mount Sinai, and he is in conversation with God. He's the mediator between God and the people of God who are at the foot of the mountain. So Moses is there. God has given him the law to deliver to the people. In the midst of this conversation where God is telling Moses that he's going to take the people into the promised land, Moses asks a bold question of God. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses asked God, Please show me your glory. It's a wild question. Moses is asking to see the glory of God. God, let me see you. It's a huge ask, and God's response confirms what a big deal it is. In fact, he says, no one can see my face and live. My glory is so magnificent, no one can see me. But nevertheless, God makes an arrangement with Moses. He tells Moses, go stand in this cleft of a rock. This spot. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass by you. And as I pass by, I'm going to stick out my hand so that you can't see me. But once I'm passed... I will remove my hand and you'll be able to see a little bit of my back. You'll see maybe the afterglow. And this is what happens. Moses goes and he takes his place where God told him to go. And he passes by declaring his name. And as God removes his hand, Moses gets just a glimpse of the glory of God. It's a fascinating scene. You can go and read that on your own Exodus chapter 33. What we see here, what I want you to consider is the magnitude of the glory of God. 
God told Moses, you can't see me and live. I will give you just a glimpse. And what we're told as you keep reading is that Moses has this interaction with God. And then when he comes down off the mountain, now this is a real person just like you or I, flesh and blood. We're told he comes off off the mountain and his face is glowing. This interaction, this glimpse of the glory of God changed his physical composure. And it was so bright, so odd that the people asked Moses to put a veil over his face. We, we can't even bear to look at your face that has seen the glory of God. All this comes together as a reminder of the magnitude of God's glory. So we keep reading the Old Testament and following this theme of glory. We could go to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah in the presence of God. As we move into the prophets, we start to hear this from the prophets. That while God has always been set apart and his presence dwelt in the holy of holies, only a priest could go in one time of year. This is how people had access to God. We're told in the prophets that there's a coming a day when the glory of God will come and dwell with people. Let me give you just one example. Isaiah chapter 40. It's actually the, the passage that Brian read as we began our service together this morning. If you're familiar with the, the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are brutal. It's God chastising his people for their rebellion. He has been so faithful to them. Go back to Moses on the mountain, the Ten Commandments. He leads them into the land. He's given them all they could ever need or want. He's given them himself. And yet they rebel against him. So what God does is he begins to pour out his judgment on them. They're exiled from their land and they're living in, under the discipline of God. But in Isaiah chapter 40, there's a transition. We go from judgment and discipline to hope of salvation. So Isaiah chapter 40, let me start reading in verse 1. And you just got to consider the contrast of where we end in verse 39 and going into chapter 40. We read comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Now feel the weight of that as a, as a nation that has been living in exile. That has been just beaten up by war. And God says to Isaiah, comfort my people. Be tender with them. Tell them that their warfare has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then he says this, a voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Does this sound familiar? This is later identified as John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who cries in the wilderness, making straight the path for God. Verse four, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places plain. And then he says this in verse five, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's hard to overstate what a transition this is in the book of Isaiah. How much hope is expressed in these verses. Living in exile, 
experiencing the consequences of their sin, living, to use the metaphor, in darkness. Then we're told that someone's coming to prepare the way. Comfort my people, speak to them with tenderness, tell them they have paid for their sins, they've been judged for their sins, but now someone's coming to prepare the way. To prepare the way for what? To prepare the way for the revealing of the glory of God. How will this happen? When will this happen? Now, full disclosure for the Bible scholars in the room. I think this is speaking in part of a future event, even future to us, when all flesh will see the glory of God. But I do think there's a partial fulfillment at the first coming of Christ. We see John the Baptist here preparing the way. And then what happens after the way is prepared? Glory is revealed. What's the point? What I'm trying to help us consider is the weight of the glory of God. And where the people of God were before that first Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And what I want you to consider is that when Jesus came, he came not only as a man, not only as a baby born to a virgin, but he came as the fulfillment of prophecy, the revelation of the glory of God. It's no small thing. To see and behold the glory of God is a big deal. In the Old Testament, there's this ongoing acknowledgement that God cannot be seen. God is distant. The only way people can approach God is through the system of sacrifices and priests. But there was this promise that a new day is coming. God will reveal himself in a new way. So we go to Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The darkness, he says, the darkness was thick and deep. But then a baby was born. And that baby is the revelation of the glory of God. Go to John 1 again. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light has come. So Isaiah, if we're thinking about the course of history, we go to Isaiah. Isaiah is looking forward to a coming light. Where we are, we're looking back, recognizing that light has come. And Jesus is the light that broke into darkness. Hebrews says he's the radiance or the shining forth of the glory of God. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw glory. Glories of the only son from the father. So what does it mean that Jesus came as the revelation of the glory of God? I've tried, maybe partially successfully, to, de to describe the glory of God and to help you consider the weight of the glory of God and the promise of the revealing of the glory of God. And we've already acknowledged that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the coming of the glory of God. So 
what does that mean? I think we can answer it by looking back at some of the passages we've already considered. Hebrews 1 again. We see there in verse 3 that he's the radiance of the glory of God. And then we get another phrase that I think helps us understand what that means. We're told in Hebrews 1, 3 that he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. That word exact imprint, it's, it's a word that was used in the time when the New Testament was written. It was used in the process of, of making coins. So they would have a mold and they would pour whatever they were using, copper or gold, into this mold. And then the coin would come out. And every coin would look the same. It was an exact imprint. We're told here that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So when we see God, Jesus, we see God. The Father and the Son are equal in love, justice, grace, judgment, mercy, and forgiveness. Jesus has all the same attributes of God. Why? Because he is God. I appreciate the words of another Puritan pastor. He says, Christ is especially glorious because he and he alone perfectly reveals God's nature and will to us. Without Christ, we would have know nothing truly about God, for he would have been eternally invisible to us. We would never have seen God at any time, either in this life nor in the next. But in Jesus, God is revealed. We've seen it in John 1. We've seen it in Hebrews 1. We've seen it in 2 Corinthians 4. We can go to Colossians chapter 1. There we're told that Jesus... In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you've had small thoughts of Jesus, that he was a, a good teacher, or maybe you've heard people say, the Bible doesn't even claim that Jesus was God. I can give you example after example after example. So plainly here in Colossians 1.19, in Jesus, all the fullness of God pleased to dwell and back in verse 15 of that same chapter he is the image of the invisible God up to this God was considered invisible no one could see him I know we're moving around a lot but hopefully this is helpful John chapter 1 verse 18 no one has ever seen God the one who is at the father's side he has made him known. What's he saying? God has never been visible to the human eye, but the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, the Father and the Son who are co-equal and co-eternal, Jesus came, and when we see him, we see God. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. And this is what I think it means in part that Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God. Because when we see Jesus, we see God, he makes glory visible. It's still true that a full view of God and the glory of God would overwhelm us, but in Jesus we're given access in a way that was never available before. God's glory is too dazzling for our weak eyes. It was described 
by one person as the sun. We can't look at the sun, it would hurt our eyes. But when the sun reflects off the water, we can take it in. So it's said that Christ is the water, and in him we see the glory of God. So we think about all this, we consider the magnitude of who God is. It should blow our minds that Jesus came, God came, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. And in him we see the glory of God. And consider that there were those who lived with him, that walked with him, that did life with him. And you know what? This was hard for them to understand too. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciple Philip? It's recorded in John chapter 14. Philip says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Show us God. Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the word made flesh, the revelation of the glory of God. This is the miracle of Christmas, that through Jesus we see the Father. Now, it's worth noting, maybe Bible scholars are thinking about this, we can go and see that other things Revealed the glory of God. Doesn't Psalm 19 tell us that the heavens, the skies, the stars proclaim the glory of God? But when Jesus came, it was altogether different. He's not simply reflecting the glory of God, he's radiating the glory of God. He's the shining forth of the glory of God. He is, in fact, God. That's the first two questions. We've tried to define what glory is and why it's weighty. We've considered how it is that Jesus displays the glory of God because he is God. He's God made visible. That brings us to our final question. Why does it matter? Why should we strive to behold Jesus as the revelation of the glory of God? Is this just a means of having good theology? Is this just so we can speak the Christian language better? How does this help us as we move into the Christmas season? What's the value of acknowledging that when Jesus came, he came as the revealing of the glory of God? Let me give you a few things to consider. First, we should strive to behold Jesus as the revelation of the glory of God because as we see Jesus, we see God. Do you want to know God? I have to guess that if you're here, if you're logged on to this meeting now, there's something in you that says, I want to know who God is. Do you want to know who God is? He's revealed in Jesus. No one's ever seen God. The one who is at the Father's side has come and has made him known. Do you you want to know what the character of God looks like? In Jesus, we see the goodness of God expressed. In Jesus, we see the love of God in action. In Jesus, we see the mercy of God extended. 
In Jesus, we see the justice of God accomplished. In Jesus, we see the power of God displayed. If you want to know God, read the scriptures. They, they reveal him. But if you want to see him most clearly, look at the person of Jesus. Here we see a lot of nativities. People have different opinions on nativities, where they should exist or should not exist. I'm a fan. I like them. I like to look at them and be reminded of Jesus. And they're everywhere right now, on tables and in yards, on greeting cards. But there is a, a, a drawback in, in that the nativity can simply remind us that he was a baby. And we can oversimplify the whole thing. You want the other part of your homework? Do you remember the first part? Look at the lights. Second part is look at nativities, and when you see them, recognize that it was more than a baby. It was the revelation of the glory of God. When Jesus came, he came as God in flesh. Jesus is not just a valued teacher or a social reformer. We don't set aside this time of year to celebrate that a good man lived a good life. No, we set aside this time of year and we give our whole lives to declaring Jesus is God. And he's come to save us. That's the first reason. Why should we care that Jesus is the revealing of the glory of God? It's because when we see Jesus, we see God. Second, by beholding the glory of God in Jesus, we are assured that we are in fact the children of God. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's where we started. We read that if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they are kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's a sobering passage. There are those who cannot see him. They do not see Jesus as beautiful. They do not see their need for him. They don't see him as glorious. They don't submit to him as Lord. They don't worship him as God. But on the other hand, Paul says that for those of us who are his, we've been given new eyes. Verse 6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To say it simply, a Christian is someone who sees Jesus and recognizes the glory of God. And those who see the glory of God submit to him as Lord. And those who see the glory of God worship him. My hope this morning is that you would be in awe of Jesus. Not because the message has been that good, but because your vision of Jesus is that clear. If you're able to behold, love, and submit to the glory of God, then you have the assurance that you are, in fact, his child. If you've been convicted of your sin and you recognize that it's only in Jesus you can be saved, that acknowledgement, that's a beholding of the glory of God. It's a beholding of his mercy and of his grace. So why is this significant? Because if you see that and you understand that, then you have the assurance that you are, in fact, his child. But if you see Jesus or you hear of Jesus and it does nothing in your souls, then maybe you have reason for concern. 
Friends, I want to encourage you this season to behold the glory of God. And if that doesn't make sense to you, can I encourage you to consider your need? When we behold the glory of God in Jesus, we behold God. When we behold the glory of God in Jesus, we have assurance that we are, in fact, the children of God. Third, by beholding the glory of God in Jesus, we're transformed into his likeness. We're going to go to yet another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In that passage, Paul's describing the unbelief of the children of Israel in the time of Moses. He talks about how they saw the glory of God on the face of Moses and they did not believe. They had the law given to them, but they did not receive it. And Paul describes their condition as people who have a veil over their face, blinding them to the glory of God. So we'll pick up reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this about those Israelites. He says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. And he says this, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Amen. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, all of us who have believed, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now let me recap what we just read. He says, before we come to Christ, we're like a people with our faces covered. We can't see the glory of God. But when we turn to the Lord, when we repent of our sins, when we place our trust in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he says the veil is removed. And then he says, with unveiled face, we behold the glory of God. And what happens as we behold the glory of God? He says, we're transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. This is Bible language for you become more like God. You're transformed. Your heart changes. You begin progressively to hate your sin more and to love the things of God. We grow. Why should we behold the glory of God? Paul tells us because it's in beholding the glory of Jesus that we're changed. Do you want victory over your sin? Behold the glory of Jesus. Do you want to grow in your ability to do good works in the name of Christ? Behold his glory. And you're thinking, that sounds really churchy, but I, I don't know what that means. How do I behold Jesus? I'm going to go to John Owen again. He says this. You can learn how to behold the glory of Christ by remembering how you used to set your mind on worldly things. See, sinful, unregenerate people are filled with lustful desires, continually thinking about and conjuring up in their minds those objects which satisfy their desires, and they do so until their eyes become full of adulteries and they cannot cease from sinning. If they work this hard to feed their lusts, shall we not work just as hard in beholding Christ? And as we do, allowing our minds to be transformed into his likeness, 
You understand what he's saying? We all know what it means to behold something. We all let our minds go to that thing that we desire more than anything else. And if we set our minds on things long enough, it will lead us more and more to worship them. Whatever it is for you. It may be something that's blatantly sinful. It may be something that's inherently good. But we give ourselves to it and we crave it and we long for it. Maybe your thing that you want more than anything is the perfect Christmas. And so you're going to do everything you have to do. You're going to check everything off the list. Every decoration is up. Every ingredient is ordered. Every gift is wrapped. Every person is cared for. And you're wanting more than anything. You wake up and you go to bed thinking, I need to make this the perfect Christmas. You give it your heart and it will never satisfy you. Or you can use that same energy. Hey, set up the tree, cook the meals, wrap the gifts. But give your first love, your first beholding to Jesus. And know that in him you will find rest. And you will find peace. And you will find joy. By beholding Jesus, our hearts are changed. Do you want to love him more? Behold him more. And your love will grow. Finally. That's what you were all thinking. Beholding the glory of God, in him we can find rest and peace. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out that her warfare is ended. And what I want you to consider this morning is that if you're in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and trusted him, your warfare has ended. Which means you don't have to fight anymore. You can rest. You're secure in the hold of the eternal God. Rest in him. This year has been chaotic. It has been unpredictable. But for those of us who know Christ, we know that God is still in control. And in the coming of Jesus, we have the assurance that he loves us and he will never let us go. By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with fears, cares, dangers, distresses, passions, and lusts. By these, our thoughts lead to chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, the mind finds rest and peace. So as we head church into another week of uncertainty, I hope you'll find rest and peace in beholding the glory of God in Christ. The very God who let light shine into darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, we can be transformed from one image of glory to another. Praise God, glory has come.